This is the Author Biz Podcast with Stephen Campbell, session number 14. Welcome to the Author Biz Podcast. I'm Stephen Campbell, and each week I'll bring you interviews, information, and insights focused on the business of being an author. You can find the episode show notes, links to everything mentioned in the show, and lots more information at theauthorbiz.com. Greetings and welcome to The Author Biz, the Monday podcast focusing on delivering actionable information to help you run your business as an author. Thanks so much for listening. I'm so pleased that you've chosen to spend some of your valuable time with me today. Have you ever wondered about book blogs? Those websites that focus on books of a specific genre, they tend to concentrate on reviewing the latest books in their chosen genre But there are a very select few that go well beyond that, fostering a community of like-minded people that connect together to discover the books they are going to love reading. I doubt that anyone has an accurate count of the number of book blogs floating about in cyberspace, but a review at one of the good ones, the ones that actually do create that community of readers, can deliver a big audience to your book, even if that review is crushingly bad. If we review a book and we give it an F because it is completely off the wall insane, that book will sell like crazy. That was Sarah Wendell, otherwise known as Smart Bitch Sarah, and she's the co-founder of Smart Bitch's Trashy Books, one of the most popular romance book blogs around today. Sarah is also an author, a popular speaker, and the co-host of a fabulously edgy podcast. You'll get a hint of that edginess in our conversation But to get the full uncensored Sarah Wendell, you should check out the DBSA Romance Fiction Podcast, which is available on iTunes. I had an absolute blast speaking with Sarah, and in this interview, we'll learn the who, what, why, and when of the Smart Bitches Trashy Books website, which is actually coming up on its 10th anniversary. You'll also get a lesson on what book bloggers do, how they can aid in the discovery of your book, how to approach the top blogs with a request for a review, and how, even if that review is eh, kind of really terrible, it can still be good for the author. One more thing this week before we get to the interview. I put together a quick listener survey, and I'd love it if you could take a couple minutes to complete it. You can find the survey at www.theauthorbiz.com slash survey. It will literally take you three or four minutes to complete it, And it'll be a big help to me in planning the next few dozen episodes. I hope the podcast is providing you with useful information each week, but I'd like it to become even more valuable going forward. Your input is very important to me. The survey is easy to fill out, and the results are completely anonymous. All right, let's get on with the interview. My guest today is Sarah Wendell, also known as Smart Bitch Sarah the co-founder and general overlady of Smart Bitches Trashy Books, which describes itself as a website that reviews romance novels from a crew of smart bitches who will always give it to you straight. Sarah is an author herself, as well as a speaker and the host of the DBSA Romance Fiction Podcast. Sarah, welcome to the Author Biz. Thank you so much for having me. So the DBSA Romance Fiction Podcast, it just rolls right off the tongue. 
It's the worst name for a podcast ever. <laughs> yes. Well, originally it was Dear Bitches Smart Authors because I co-host it with Jane Litt, who runs DearAuthor.com, another romance-focused blog. And so I thought, well, let's just mix our name and make it Dear Bitches and Smart Authors. We're going to talk about writing and we're going to talk about reading romances. That'll work. And at some point, iTunes got in touch with us and said, yeah, you can't have that as your name. And I was like, <laughs> do you see the name of the songs that are in your store? Our podcast name is tame compared to that. And they're like, yeah, no, you need to change it. Then I was like, well, crap. And I had an episode going up the next day and I didn't know what to do. So I was like, all right, fine. It's just DBSA romance fiction podcast. We'll just redo our logo and rename it and put it back out. Cause I didn't want to miss a week. Cause you know, when you're podcasting, part of what develops an audience is delivering the podcast on a schedule and keeping up your own momentum. And so I just made the decision as fast as I could. And apparently when I have um, a lot of time to think or very little time to think, either way, I don't come up with good names for anything. So, yes, boring podcast name, but good podcast, I think. It's a great podcast. And anyone <laughs> who likes book podcasts, romance specifically, should be listening mm -hmm. to this and really likes a little attitude with their podcast because you guys bring it in spades. Yes, yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> now, I didn't realize the... The name was so difficult to pronounce until I started practicing the intro. And all of yep. a sudden, it's like, okay, D-B-S-A, Romance Fiction Podcast. Oh, okay, we got it. So this, when did you start podcasting? Did I assume the blog came first, the website? Oh, yes. The, my blog started in January of 2005, so we're coming up on our 10th anniversary. I know. It's like the Paleolithic era of the internet. <laughs> Um, I started writing online back in 1997 when I taught myself HTML and decided I wanted to have an online journal, which was a thing. Before there were blogs, there mm -hmm. were online journals, and it was just as pretentious as it sounds. Um, the entries were much longer. They were long-form essays. There was not a lot of illustration because that was just past the days when you could have a website of any color you wanted so long as it was <laughs> black text on a gray background. And once I taught myself HTML... I decided I wanted to have my own website, so I programmed my own online journal, and then blogging software came, and I thought, this was great. I don't have to do my own archives. Everything is dated <laughs> automatically. This is amazing. I love technology. So I had been writing online for a number of years before I ended up co-founding Smart Bitches totally on a whim based on an email conversation with someone I'd only spoken to online. And at some point, one of us said, you know, we should start a website about romance novels and talk about how much we like them and talk about how much the ones that suck make us really angry and, and you know, harness the power of our English degrees and focus them tightly on the romance genre. And whoever was the one who didn't say that said, okay, sure, it was probably me. <laughs> and I, um, I bought the domain and Candy, who co-founded the site with me, she did the first design. It has always been a little Pepto-Bismol pink. It has always been not work safe. Uh -huh. And the site grew from there. Um, the podcast was something that Jane Litt and I started a couple of years ago, and we did about eight episodes with a friend of ours who had produced them, and she works in digital technology, and she, her, she and her husband run a company that helps broadcast international feeds of U.S. programs overseas, so they are very used to digital editing. So our first episodes sounded great, but we didn't pay her. And, and you can't ask people to do things for free on a weekly basis. That's just wrong. So I taught myself 
not very well, but as best as I could, to do the podcast. We restarted it, and now it is a weekly um, a weekly episode, but about 30 to 40 minutes each episode. And every week we have new people finding it saying, oh my gosh, this is so great. It's like listening to my friends talk about romance novels. Only when I talk, you don't listen to me because you're just talking <laughs> on the MP3 and I can't listen. At some point, we need to have a call-in show so everyone who listens can call in and argue with us. It's going to have to be longer than 30 minutes when you do yes, that Yes, it will. <laughs> Well, the, the show is fabulous. I stumbled across it a few months ago when I was doing research for a guest of mine, and I I won't say that I'm a big romance reader. I do really enjoy romantic suspense, mm-hmm. and so you you had interviewed some authors that I particularly liked, and I just found sometimes the titles would intrigue me, and I'll learn about authors that I'd never heard of before, yep. and they just sound so cool. I think anyone sounds cool when they're talking to you, by the way. I hope you make me sound cool today. Oh, thank you. I don't know if I have that power, but I'm happy to use it as best I can. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. So let's take this all the way back, not to the beginning, but when you started the website, the uh, the WordPress website. We'll call it the WordPress website or this or this. Yeah, that probably was WordPress when you started using blogging. No, software. No? no, no. Blogging software for smart bitches. Yes. Uh, was it's uh, it's funny enough. I'm migrating over to WordPress this year, but right now and in the beginning, we used a software called Expression Engine. Really? Yes, I don't recommend. How about it. you? <laughs> <laughs> I used to love it, and I and I um, I'm really sad that it has developed in a way that doesn't fit what I do. But in the beginning, it was super robust, had a ton of plugins and options, and it was a really adaptable and powerful content management system. But now it's used, I think, mostly for sites that don't have comments or interactions. And that's the lifeblood of my community that we all talk to each other. So I am moving over to WordPress, but in the beginning, back in the dark ages, I used Expression Engine. And for the time being, I still do. But yes, going back to the start of the website 10 years ago. Okay. And then I want to get back to community because you guys have an, an amazing community. So let's we'll, we'll go from this first question right into community. But sure. Very basically, for people who may not completely understand what a book blog does, what do you do? (laughs) Our site goal, our community goal, is to connect romance readers with one another and connect them with books that they're going to love to read. So as a romance blogger, and there are so many romance blogs now, it is awesome because it's the internet. We haven't run out of room yet. Mm Mm-hmm. Romance blogs talk about the books, the women who read and write them, the way the genre changes, different trends that are happening. One of the things about romance that I don't think a lot of people understand is how large of a genre it is. Oh, it yeah. is a it is a billion dollar annual seller depending on whose statistics you're listening to. It is one of the most popular if not the most popular fiction genre in US sales each year, again depending on whose statistics you listen to. And it is also one of the most denigrated and derided genres of fiction. It is amazing to me that people feel, well, well, comfortable saying to somebody who's reading a romance novel exactly what they think of that person and their choice of reading material. <laughs> like, I have had this happen to me on the subway in New York in the morning, and I'm like, you are some kind of idiot to A, insult me before I've had caffeine, and B, talk to a total stranger like that. What's wrong with you? But it is a very common experience. One of the things that we specialize in is being very, very silly and irreverent, but also very welcoming. 
I get email at least once a week from people who have decided to look online and see if there's anyone talking about this book that they might want to read and finding the site and emailing me and saying, oh my God, where have you been all my life? I don't talk to anybody about that. I, the fact that I read romance novels. Everyone would make fun of me. I don't tell anyone. I had no idea that there were so many readers online talking to each other, to which I say, oh, welcome, and um, just just get ready because you're going to spend a lot of money on books once you see all of us talking at the same time. <laughs> the other thing we do is we talk about the books that we're reading. And it's interesting because some blogs specialize in only talking about new books, the things that are coming out right now. Mm -hmm. They want to be one of the earliest people to review it. They want to convince people this book is going to be amazing. Let's all get behind it and read it because everyone needs to know about this amazing book. We do a little of that, but we also read very, very far back into the past. I'm currently reading a YA fantasy romance called The Blue Sword by Robin McKinley that I think was originally published in 1983 or 1984. Wow. But, you know, it's new to me. I haven't read it. So anything that that my reviewers want to read, that I want to read, I'm open to talking about it because if you haven't read it before, it's new to you. One of the things that so often happens to romance readers is that they become isolated. They don't tell anybody what they're reading and they don't talk about what they're reading. And so it can be very difficult for them to find readers whose tastes match theirs, which is why we will review any book that is new to us that we're curious about. And we step outside the romance genre too. Carrie, who reviews for me, adores science fiction and fantasy, but also nonfiction about women in various historical periods. And Elise, who also reviews for me, adores suspense, but also wanted to try watching Bollywood movies. So this week we had... <laughs> I saw that. <laughs> oh, it was so fun. We had a, a... It's weird. I don't know if you ever had this experience, but there'll sort of be a a coincidence magnet in your inbox where a reader will email me, for example, I just wrote up this recommendation list for a friend of mine of Bollywood movies and how they're all so romantic. And, you know, it occurred to me that maybe you would like to publish it. And I was like, yes, yes, I would. And then the next day, Elise emails me and says, I watched this three hour Bollywood movie and it was kind of amazing, but also completely weird. Would you like me to review it? Why? Yes, yes, I would. So this week we had a whole discussion about Bollywood movies and the romantic tropes that show up in them. And it became this huge magnet for new, new visitors because, this was something we hadn't talked about, but it was related to the genre. The nice thing about being a book blog is that I don't just talk about books. We don't just discuss books, but everything comes back to book recommendations or what we want to recommend for one another. So this, let's get back to the whole community thing. And you were really talking about your community there, the way it has, it, it, it feeds the site and the content of the site. Yeah. Everybody that starts a website wants to develop a community, but it takes a while. How long did it take you guys to get such a vibrant community? It, it happened in a number of different steps. Um, initially, we had like six readers. And, and one was your mom. and One was my husband. Uh-huh. And one was Candy and her friend in Singapore. Uh-huh. Um, and you, if you want to edit this part out, I, I totally understand. But for a long time, at the top of the site, the coded title that would appear at the top of the web browser was, Come for the Dominican Bitches and Stay for the Man Titty. And that was because... <laughs> For the first 
Oh, I would say almost three months, maybe four months, I would look at our stats and I would look at our referrals and where was traffic coming from and what search terms people were using because I wanted to make sure that people were able to at least find something about romances when they came to our site and what terms they were using. And there was this one IP every day searching Dominican bitches and then coming to the site and coming back. (laughs) And then coming back. Now, I am not Dominican, and Candy is not Dominican, but we're smart bitches. This guy came, I'm assuming it's a guy, came every day. And we were so amused that we like gave him a little nod at the top of the site for at least six or seven years. Come for the Dominican bitches, but stay for the man titty. Oh, that's hysterical. I, I have no idea if that dude is still reading, but I hope so, because it's awesome. And that, that actually answers another question that I'd written down and wanted to ask you offline. You also have a personal website where you refer to yourself and, and the man titty term is in the is in the reference. And I just couldn't figure that out. Now I get man-titty it. Man titty media pundit. Yes. Man titty is our way of talking about the typical stereotypical image of the romance novel cover where you have a guy whose shirt is unbuttoned but still tucked in which we still haven't figured out and there's almost always a preponderance of waxed pectoral development there big pecs big huge abs absolutely no body hair the possibility of oil because they're always very shiny and the fact that in the beginning and throughout the history of the site we would make a little fun or a lot of fun of the romance covers because they're often ridiculous man titty became the shorthand term that we used for oh my gosh look yet another naked man chest oh wow nipples that is still an image that is used to market romances if I look at my site right now most of the covers that are advertised and most of the covers that are on the page itself, they have a naked man chest. And we're like, oh, look, man titty. <laughs> One of the things that we did on a regular basis and that we still do is, is cover snark, where we put up a couple covers and discuss all of the many, many things that are strange or wrong about them. And it's a very popular feature because the covers are part of what invite people, I think, to make fun of romance. The covers almost never accurately represent the story inside. They send a very clear signal to the romance reader. This is a romance. Nothing else looks like this. If you are looking for the romance, this is what you, you, this is it. I promise you, man, titty is the sign you are looking for. But that sort of salacious, grasping, overtly sexual image is not always the content of the book. Sometimes the most you get is some really steamy hand-holding or like, you know, smoldering eye staring, that kind of thing. The man titty is just our reference to the typical image of the romance cover. Okay, speaking of covers. Yes. And it seems to me like if you're embarrassed by reading or or people attack you on subways when you're reading romance novels, that being able to read them on your Kindle or Nook or what on your iPhone makes it a lot easier. Has in your experience has the readership for romance novels gone up since <clears throat> the dawn of the digital age? Oh, holy crap, yes. Part of the problem is that romance readers are not themselves ashamed. I haven't met anyone who says, yeah, I'm really ashamed that I read these things and I spend, you know, $160 a month on books. I'm just horribly, horribly ashamed of myself. Nobody actually feels the shame. They're told they ought to feel the shame. And so they don't tell anyone because they would really just rather be left alone so that they can read. There are people who are embarrassed, who have been told that they should be embarrassed, and they're embarrassed to tell people because they know what likely response they're going to get. But when you get two people together who both love romance, there's no shame. There's a lot of joy. And oh, yeah. 
what I call good book noise, mm -hmm. which is when someone mentions a book that you love and you go, oh, I love that book. Good book noise is something that we celebrate and we love to find in, in on the site. And there, there really is, there's no end to the number of romance books that you can read. If you're a romance reader, the, the pool is ever deeper. That's right. Ha ha. That's why we have so many blogs, because we couldn't possibly keep up with all the books. The thing about digital reading is that initially, I remember going back to maybe 2007 or 2008, there was a conference called O'Reilly Tools of Change in Publishing. The conference has since shut down, but it was basically about the intersection of digital technology and publishing. And the people who would come and speak at that conference were incredible. It was the, the, there used to be a e-reading software on, on the iDevices for the iPhone and the iPod Touch called Stanza. Stanza was later acquired by Amazon, which is sort of a demonstration of how powerful and how good the software was. But on the day that the guy who helped create it got up on stage and gave like a 15-minute introduction of what Stanza was, I was like, get out of my way. I need my phone right now. I need to have this. Part of the attraction for romance readers, and I think that a lot of technology companies and certainly a lot of publishers didn't really understand why it was that women were going to be the driving force between digital books, is that for romance readers, particularly readers who th – this is what we do. I don't watch a lot of TV. I read. It is my favorite thing to do, and it is the only thing that I do where I'm only doing one thing. At any other time of my life, at any other moment of the day, I'm doing at least four things at once. Reading, I am doing one thing. It is a very important part of my day. The idea that I can finish a book and immediately start another one and I don't even have to leave the house or put on shoes <laughs> is incredible. When you say to someone, I have 425 books in my bag right now and it doesn't weigh any more or less if I add 50 more, that is incredible for a romance reader. I remember – do you remember the first Kindle? It looked like a wedge. I, I bought the first Kindle. Oh, I totally did too. It yeah. was so unattractive. It was like a – it looked like something you'd use in, in, in a woodworking class. Like it was all angled, like you could scrape things with it. I would totally use an, an original model Kindle to like smooth the sides of a yeah, sandcastle. You could. For sandcastle construction, it would be awesome. I remember there was an editor at Kensington Publishing named Kate Duffy who died a few years ago. And she was one of the first persons I, I met who had a Kindle and she showed it to me and I was holding it and it was like the angels sang and there were tingles <laughs> and the lights dimmed. And I was like, this is the most amazing thing I have ever held in my life. And I needed one immediately. When romance readers understood that not only did you have immediate access and instantaneous ability to buy and add more books, carry three or four hundred of them with you, and read wherever and whenever you want, that was what was going to help digital reading go kaboom. And Jane at Dear Author was one of the earliest people who identified that romance readers would be a driving force in the digital market. And I think in a lot of ways we have. Another thing that happened that helped explode sort of the... The, the ability of women to connect with digital books was Fifty Shades of Grey. Mm -hmm. Not only because in the very beginning, before the book was purchased by Knopf, it was only available digitally. Paper copies were very hard to find because it had been published by a small press in Australia. And online, the paper copy was two or $300 because people were trying to sell you know, the one copy they had and people were buying it for that price. You could buy it digitally instantly anywhere. And so in order to be sort of part of that conversation, you spent the money, you got the book, you had it on your phone or your device and you read it and all of a sudden you could talk about this thing that everyone else was talking about. Plus, 
no one could tell what you were reading. And like I said earlier, I don't think readers actively carry shame. They just are told that they ought to be. And so they feel embarrassment sharing with someone that they read romance when that person might turn around and be like, dude, that's, that's just wrong. Now with that, with that being said, mm-hmm. I, I clearly remember a time when I was positive that every woman I saw that was reading a Kindle for the first time was reading 50 shades. It's possible. Cause there for a time, I think they were. And yeah, the ones I asked, they all were, and they were happy to tell you about it. Mm-hmm. That was the book that really helped change the way people understood erotic contemporary romance because the, the things that went on in Fifty Shades of Grey were not new. A, it was Twilight fanfic, so we'd already seen Twilight. There's been erotic romance for 15 years now, especially romance that features BDSM in accurate and safe portrayals of it, I might add. It is not accurate and it is not safe in that book. That's one thing that I think gets lost that is so important. I am all about people discovering new aspects of themselves, of their personalities, of their sexuality. If you learn about yourself through reading, that's awesome. But if there's one thing I wish to tell everyone on the planet, the portrayal of BDSM in that particular series is unsafe, it is not correct, and it is a huge disservice to people who do safely and regularly practice BDSM. I'm going to jump off my soapbox now. Thank (laughs) you very much. That was absolutely a time when everyone was reading that book. Because every now and again, there's a book that everyone's reading. That was the book that everyone was reading. And no one was going to say a word to you about reading that book if you were reading it on your phone and they couldn't verify. But if you were re- holding a paper copy of it, people would be like, oh, mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's uh, yeah, I know what you're reading because I totally read it too. The nice thing about Fifty Shades is that it gave us a common language to talk about erotic contemporary romance, romance with explicit sexual content, power dynamics. Was fanfic going to become a new force in publishing, which in a small way it has? There's a lot of fanfic that has been picked up and published by New York publishing houses over the past couple of years. Fifty Shades did a lot of things to sort of change the romance genre and change publishing's perception of that particular part of it. So as much as the book made me nuts, it has done some interesting and I think largely positive things to the industry as well. And there are a lot of people writing erotic romantic fiction now that that weren't and wouldn't have considered it before. It's a wildly popular genre. It has been for quite some time. Uh, 15 or even 20 years ago, the first digital books for for romance readers were published by Alora's Cave and, and Sam Hain and Oh, there was another one, Um, Lucid and Liquid Silver Books. All of those publishers, the first things that they specialized in were erotic romance because New York publishing houses weren't going to publish it. They weren't interested in acquiring it. And those authors knew that they had an audience and they knew that there were readers who wanted those books. Now erotic romance is much, much more common in most bookstores. And you'll also notice that Fifty Shades has changed the way those books look. If the signal to a romance reader that this book is a romance is, is you know, a naked chest and two people grabbing each other or some sort of just man titty in general – Fifty Shades, because of the very basic imagery of a gray tie on a gray background, has changed the way that particular subgenre looks. Now it's single item images with a very narrow depth of focus. There's only one piece of whatever it is that's clear that's clear and crisp. Everything else is sort of fuzzy. You'll have a one color image or you'll have a single color of uh, like that's only used for that particular series. One example is Maya Banks's Fever series. The first had blue water, uh, the second one had gray ice, and the third one had um, orange and red flames. So you knew from across the room mm-hmm. that that was likely to be erotic contemporary romance or erotic contemporary. 
let's talk about reviews. Did you? Did, I'm sure you guys did a review on Fifty Shades. I did. I gave it a DNF because at okay. the time I couldn't bear to finish it. it really? Was, okay. Oh God! Everyone was like, "It's so hot. It's so erotic," and I was like, "I'm not turned on. I'm miserable." <laughs> Every time I turn the page, the little indicator at the bottom of my Kindle never moves. I'm going to be reading this book for the rest of my life, and. I gave it a DNF and I was like, I, I, I didn't like the hero. I didn't like the portrayal. I didn't like the heroine. I was in her head and I didn't like Twilight either. So it was not a surprise to me that that was not a book for me. I don't like being in the head of a heroine in a first person narration. If the heroine has the personality of cold oatmeal, like that's not something that I enjoy. And I don't find it easy to access the story from that point of view. So I didn't enjoy the book. But then everyone kept talking about it, and it became a bigger and bigger thing. And the fact that it was becoming this book that everyone was talking about completely floored me. I was shocked, and I kept writing about it because there was more stuff to say. And eventually I went back and finished it because I was being asked to be on television to talk about it. I'm like, well, I kind of have to finish it. I want to go on TV and talk about it. Damn it. So I finished it, and I didn't enjoy it any more than I had the first time I tried to read it. But that was one of the reviews that remains a very popular landing page for the site. It was a review that I wrote that was very long. It was very critical. It talked about all the things that I didn't like about it and the, the things that I did enjoy, I mentioned in the context of the review. I liked it when he was emailing her because that was when you heard his voice and his voice was much more interesting to me than hers. But like I said, first person point of view, I'm stuck in her head, I don't wanna be there. That review still gets a lot of traffic because people are still talking about Fifty Shades. Not as much as before, but they're still talking about it. And with the movie coming out, they'll be talking yes. about it again. Oh, my Lord, yes. <laughs> I, was, I was driving somewhere and I heard a radio commercial teasing the premiere of the trailer of the movie that was going to be on the Today Show exclusively. And I was like, I think I need to pull over. I am hearing an ad teasing the trailer of a movie that's going to be on the Today Show about a movie that's based on a book. This is crazy. And, and the audio, because it was just radio, the audio was so disturbing because mm -hmm. whoever the heroine is or whoever the actress is, she's making these weird noises. And I'm like, no, no, change station right now. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to listen to them. It was, it was a very creepy creepy audio that movie is going to be really interesting yes i don't know that i'll have the opportunity to see it because i know my wife won't go with me and i think if you're a guy and you go by yourself you get categorized in a certain weird way that i don't want to be categorized as no i think you should totally go and i'll tell you something you should take your mother <laughs> i was i was at of all places i was at a memorial service um for a friend of mine who passed away last year mm -hmm. and there was a big memorial service we were having tequila and all of her favorite foods and it was kind of like a party and i was sitting at a big table with her mother and her father and her friend who is a, a gentleman who lives in Philadelphia and his mother lives in Florida. And he goes down in the winter and spends a few months with her every year. All of a sudden, everyone at this table is talking about Fifty Shades of Grey, including my friend's parents mm. and this guy. And he's like, oh, I my mother read it. And then I had to read it because she kept trying to talk to me about it and I couldn't handle it. So I read it too. And now we both want to go see the movie together. And I was like, can I just Wait. go with you guys? Because <laughs> it's going to be so fun. So what you should do is take your mother to see Fifty Shades of Grey, the movie. Well, we'll see about that. <laughs> I, I wish I could go to Florida and see it with them because it would be so fun. Well, we'd love to have you down here. Okay, I will come.
All right, book reviews. You yeah. guys, you mentioned the DNF review, which means, yeah. in, in your case, did not finish. Did not finish. You guys are brutally honest yep. with your reviews. I looked this morning through the last four reviews. Mm-hmm. They were A-, B+, C-, DNF. So right. you're not giving people puff reviews. Why would anyone subject themselves to one of your reviews? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we get email from authors who say, I am terrified of you, but I would really like you to review my uh-huh. book. And I always feel kind of bad because if there's anyone, as, as Redheaded Girl said recently in a discussion about pitching for review, if there's anyone who should believe in your book, it's you, the author. Our reviews, here's the thing about reviews. Our reviews and, and other reviews written by readers are not for authors. They're for other readers. Mm-hmm. It, it, think about it. I've published two books, and I have gotten bad reviews. And some of the things that were in those reviews were entirely accurate, that we had misused a word or that we talked about something and then didn't come back to it. And those are totally valid reasons to be disappointed with a book. And I can't go back and change it. I wish I could fix it, but I can't. And so I just have to let it go and say, yep, you're right. I'll try not to do that again because that was – that was something I should have noticed. I can't go back and change the book and make it different. And once it's published, you can't control the conversation about a book. Once it's out, it's it's out of the author and the publisher's hands. It's impossible to control the conversation about a book, and it looks pretty silly if you try. Reviews are for readers. It's us talking to one another about what we thought about a book and helping other people decide if it's a book that they want to read. The thing to remember about a negative review is that I don't know of any reader who, when looking for something to read, only reads one review. No reviewer is ever the last word on a book. Like, no one ever says that I have heard, oh, well, Sarah gave it a C, so I'm not going to read it. No, they're going to be like, wow, well, Sarah really didn't like the fact that there was insta-love and the, you know, the hero had a had a serious um, case of personal interest in the heroine from a very early time in the story, but I kind of really like that. I'm going to buy that right now. And another thing to remember is that of all of the reviews that sell books, because there's affiliate coding in the buyer and the buy link so that we can tell which books get purchased and which books attract a lot of clicking interest. If we review a book and we give it an F because it is completely off the wall insane, that book will sell like crazy. We have sometimes sold more books through F reviews than we have through A reviews. Now, that's interesting. It's true. Why? I have. A, I don't know specifically why, but I have a theory. Okay. First, squee is easy to fake. It is really easy to fake hype and excitement about something. And you'll notice that if something has a lot of artificial hype around it, you see the same phrases about it. It's true to life. The characters rang true. You'll see those phrases. It's it's a tour de force. It's life-changing. It's incredible. <laughs> this book is am- – uh, yeah. You see the same kind of language used. And if someone comes at me and says, oh, my God, I totally read this book, and it was so amazing. I mean, then she went and she did yoga, and then she ate pasta, and then she met the love of her life, and it was just incredible, and it changed my life, and you have to read this book. I'm going to be like, whoa, back away slowly. Uh-huh. Hype. Hype is easy to fake. When I went to your site this morning, Mm -hmm. I I started looking at reviews, and of course the first thing I did was to look up the DNF reviews. That's right. And I started reading them, and uh, you have a unique reviewing style. You and the reviewers that review 
uh, for the site. That's mm-hmm. you, you you tell a story with a review, and it's they're fun to read. Yes, and I can see, and there were actually DNF books that I read. Uh, I read the review, and I thought, you know, I might like that. <laughs> yep, totally. Because what you're getting is just one person's opinion, mm-hmm. and the contrast to hype is knowing where someone else's line of bad is. And this is why I think negative reviews can sell books so well, because if if anyone has ever come up to you and said, "This smells weird," and then holds it out to you, you totally sniff. Mm-hmm. If someone walks up to you and goes, this smells funny, you're like, give it here. I want to smell it too. I've just said it smells bad, but you're going to sniff because knowing where someone else's level of bad is, even if you're talking about milk or romance novels, that tells you a great deal about whether or not your t- tastes align. And when you're a reader looking online for book reviews, finding the people whose tastes align with yours is incredibly valuable. And that is the person who you're going to look to when you're looking for something to read. Well, what did what did Elise like? Because she loves romantic suspense where the heroine is extra stupid. And I happen to love that. And that, that's not actually true. She does not like when the heroine is stupid. But as, a, as an example, I love those. I love what Elise loves. I'm going to go find her reviews. I get email from people that says, I love every book book you hate. Keep up the good work. (laughs) So if I don't like it, they're like, clickety-click, bye. And even on reviews that have been very negative, for example, over the weekend, there was a review written by Redheaded Girl of a book that she, she found so bad, she couldn't finish it. She thought it was overwritten. It used ridiculous phrases. Like at one point, the, the the narrator refers to the heroine's lips on her mouth, her mouth as her thin red aperture. I read that. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Yet in the comments, there is somebody who says um, the the buy links are broken. Can you fix them? <laughs> so even though we have examples of how overwritten and completely bananas this book is and how much redheaded girl really didn't like it. There was somebody who's like, I would really like to read this right now. Can you help me? And of course, we're like, of course, we can help you. <laughs> The best example I have is a book by Sharon Kendricks called The Billionaire Playboy Chic's Virgin Stable Girl. Wow. This is a Harlequin Presents, and it is my favorite, ridiculous, over-the-top, crazy sauce book. It's it's just so incredibly awesome because when you you, – if you – Turn up the crazy sauce. You just open the spigot all the way. It's just fun. And I also think that good and bad isn't a linear measurement. It's actually a quadrant. You have good and you have bad. And then you have crazy sauce, which makes a book fall off the end of bad and circle back around past good into completely fun and awesome. (laughs) Sharknado. Yes, it's it's the Sharknado of books. It's as Uh ridiculous. We know it's not good. We are so tuning in anyway because it's fun. Fun. I mean, Virgin Stable Girl, Playboy Chic, what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> that is a book that when I, I have a whole workshop that I do about reviews, how to approach reviewers, how to ask for reviews, how to get reviews, and then how to use them and process them and deal with them it's a, if it's a review that you don't like. And every time I talk about the billionaire Playboy Chic's Virgin Stable Girl, and every time someone in the room, at least two people, buys the book while I'm talking about it. 
<laughs> because the minute I start talking about how completely bonkers it is, people are like, I need to own this. This needs to be in my life right now. And I see people grabbing their phones and finding it. And if invariably somebody will be like, I just bought it and it's awesome. This happens every time because not only is your line of bad an incredible, valuable tool to help you just show what you like and dislike, but when you openly adore the crazy sauce, there are many other people in that audience with you. Okay, this seminar you give, I've got some questions that's probably going to relate directly to the seminar. Sure. And, of course, people should go and see you when you give this seminar because you'll give uh, much more in-depth answers. But how should someone approach a a book reviewer and ask for a review? We actually had a whole article about this on the site last week Mm -hmm. about pitches because somebody sent us a pitch that was really – it insulted us. It insulted the genre. It insulted other books that we liked. And it was just – It was just incredibly negative and off-putting, and we all had a conversation over email about it. And I said, you know, we should really share this conversation and talk about this publicly. So we talked about pitching. The best way to pitch a reviewer online is the same way that you would pitch an agent or an editor. Address them by name. Introduce yourself, your book, what genre it is, what what what, what, what is your book like is it is it a steampunk historical is it an adventure romance is it a historical with a great deal of emotional angst how does it fit within the huge spectrum of the romance genre give a sample and a synopsis and tell us if it hasn't been published when when it'll be released and by whom and if it's self-published that's okay the way in which you pitch a reviewer is not that far off from pitching an agent or pitching an editor. Introduce yourself, introduce your book, introduce why you think that we might like it, and then just say thank you. That's all you can do. Do you get most of your pitches from authors, or do they come from publicity people? We get both. Um, there are a number of publicists that we have good relationships with, and they will pitch us books If it's someone that I've worked with for years, they will email me and be like, Sarah, dude, this is so your catnip here. Mm -hmm. Be like, oh, thank you. Um, We get pitches from authors. We get pitches from publicists. We'll get pitches from publishers or uh, editors sometimes. We'll say, I just finished this book, and you know, it it really reminded me of this other book that I know you loved, and I just wanted to make sure you knew about it. Because the thing about romance is that even though the genre is very, very large, the community is actually very, very small. Most of the people who write romance are women. Most of the people who edit and publicize romance are women, and most of the people who read it and buy it are women. And so we are all romance readers. It's very hard to be a romance writer if you haven't read romance before. So we all talk about books, either the books we're reading or the books that we're writing or producing or reviewing. This is something that is uh, we're always going to have in common. So that sort of community, as small as it is, is one of the ways in which I learn about books, even if they're not being pitched to me for review. Somebody just getting really excited about a book that they loved, and it's someone I know whose taste aligns with mine, I wish to know what that book is immediately. How should an author use a review? You mentioned that earlier, and I I thought that was an interesting take on this. Should authors respond to reviews that are negative? My general answer is no, because you can't hide ass hurt. When you're angry and your feelings are hurt and you're ticked off about a review, you cannot camouflage that. You think you can, but it cannot be done. Ass hurt is impossible to hide. There have only been a very handful, like four different reviews on the site where an author has responded and it was awesome and it worked in their favor. And you could tell that those are authors who had written a number of books 
and who had experience dealing with reviews. And not everyone is going to like every book that you write. There is a author named Lynn Ray Harris who writes Romantic Suspense and Harlequin Presents, which are contemporary romances. And she was having a conversation with me at one point and said, you know, I, I, I got to a point where, you know, reviews – don't really don't bother me anymore. And I said, okay, well, how many books have you written? And she thinks, and she's like, um, I, I somewhere, uh, 40 something. And I'd be like, that's why when you have that many books, it doesn't matter what somebody says about one of them because someone else loved this one over here and it becomes less personal. The hardest thing for an author, I think is when it is your first book or your second book and you get a negative review and it's upsetting. I totally get that, especially with romance because it is an intimate genre. We're writing about intimacy and emotions. So it is an intimate process to craft a good romance novel and it's an intimate process to read it and have reactions to it. It could be very difficult to deal with someone not liking your book. So the first thing I do is tell authors, you do not have to read your reviews. And in fact, if you think it's going to upset you, don't do it. I never read the reviews of my book unless I'm in a very specific mood and I have wine and chocolate. <laughs> because it sucks to see that somebody didn't like it because I'm very proud of the books that I wrote. I think that I think that they are they're amazing to me that I wrote two books. Like, that just blows me away every time. Like, wow, that's kind of cool. I don't read the reviews because, A, I can't change them, and B, it's, it's never fun to know that someone didn't like something you wrote. However, the first thing you can do when you publish a book is designate a friend who's going to have the Google alert for your name, and then you can do the same for her. You can check out the reviews that come in for her book and say, hey, this is a good review. I'm going to send you this link. You should look at this. But the agreement is never Google your own name because if it's going to upset you, why put yourself through that misery? You can't control the conversation readers are going to have about your book. You can't change a bad review. Having an epic hissy fit is not going to help. No one is ever going to say, I was totally wrong about your hero because you have called me an idiot. Thank you. I have changed my opinion about you and your book because of your aggressive behavior. That doesn't happen, so don't do it. Just don't read them. If you do read them and, in, and you've published books and you're kind of like, yeah, whatever, or you've worked in a field where you've experienced peer review before, even a negative review can work in your favor. For example, there's an author named uh, Jennifer McQuiston who has a historical series that's set in the Victorian era, which is a bit of a newer historical genre for romance. Most and many are written in the Regency, an increasing number are being written in the Victorian age, which is really awesome. Her first book was sort of a play on The Hangover, where the hero and heroine wake up married in the beginning of the book and spend most of the book, they were at a party then they, and they and it's historical. So the fact that they're married is very strange. They can't remember how they got married, and so they split up and try to figure out what the heck happened, learning about each other while they're apart, and then coming together at the end. It was a very specific conceit in that plot, and Elise really didn't like it because there was no growth of them together. It was them learning about themselves, what they'd done in the past, and then coming, to, and coming together in the end for the happy ever after. And she didn't like it. But she talked considerably about how much she really enjoyed the writing and how if the plot had been different, the characters were awesome. And then a few months later, when McQuiston's second book came out, Elise gave it an A and was like, dude, this book was amazing. Oh, my gosh. This is, this is what I wanted from this writer. This is incredible. I love this. And so even though she'd given the first book a low grade, she was absolutely going to read the second one because there was enough in there that she enjoyed that she wanted to see what this author could do. 
And McQuiston tweeted the day of the negative review, and she said, when a negative review isn't bad, mm. and then tweeted mm-hmm. a link. And I thought, okay, that is a perfect response. It is a negative review. This person didn't like your book, but it is not a negative review of your writing. And it went on to prove that that readers are pretty smart. We're not going to look at one review and be like, oh, wow, that author's career is in the toilet. Like, that doesn't happen. If we like a reviewer, or we, excuse me, if we like a, a, a writer's characters, or we like something about the way that they write and one book didn't work for us, we'll try again. I did a reader seminar with Jane um, from Dear Author at the Romantic Times Book Lovers Convention, which is basically like, it's like Comic-Con for romance readers. It's awesome. We did a whole round round table panel discussion, and one of the questions that, that Jane asked was, how many books does it take for an author to end up on your auto-buy list? And mm, people that's a good the, question. I know. It was a really good question. And most of the people said, oh, one book. One book that blows me away. I will absolutely look for that author's next book. And then she said, well, how many books does it take for an author to fall off your auto-buy list? And most people thought about it and said, oh, two or three. So it only takes one amazing book to, to make an impact on a reader, but you have more chances before they give up altogether. And that's an important thing for authors to remember. Just because one book didn't work for a reader doesn't mean that the next one won't work either. Readers are curious, and we gravitate towards writers whose books we've enjoyed, and we tell other people about the books that we enjoy. So one negative review is not something to lose your mind over. As Jennifer says, excuse me, as uh, Jennifer McQuiston said, a negative review isn't always bad. Mm -hmm. And to quote Jane from Dear Author, this is part of my workshop, The enemy of your book is not a negative review. The enemy of your book is no one talking about it at all. If they say the name of the book and your name, you win. Even if everything afterward is like, I hated this book, I hated the hero, I hated the heroine, the setting was terrible. Somebody's going to be like, I I like all of those things. This is my catnip. Give it to me now. And because they know the name of the book and the name of the author, they can go find it. So even, even negative reviews work for the author. They work in the author's favor. It sounds like your reviewers have a great deal of autonomy when it it comes to picking books. Is that true? Absolutely. They can read whatever it is that they want to read, and I'm curious to know what they think of it. I... I am I'm currently reading YA fantasy from the early 80s. So, I'm a very happy camper. And what's funny is the the minute I mentioned that in my last week's podcast with author Ilona Andrews, and I said I I don't know how I missed Robin McKinley. She's a huge, hugely popular fantasy author. I received so many email messages from people who said, oh, "I love her books." Oh my gosh, I am so excited that you get to discover them for the first time. These books changed my life. And have you read this one? And have you read this one? And this one is amazing. And I cannot wait for you to to see how great this whole body of her work is. You are so lucky. And I'm like, oh, this is great. I'm broke now, but this is great. <laughs> it's a good thing my library has some of them, because otherwise I would be eating ramen noodles, and so would my family. Isn't it fabulous, though, when you find a book from the early 80s and you know there is a whole series that goes all the way up to today and oh, you love it? God. Oh, it's the best. Somebody was talking about that yesterday. There's a uh, there's a writer named Jessica Luther who's mostly a feminist activist, and she's based in Texas, but she also happens to love romance novels. And she was uh, tweeting yesterday that she was reading Julianne Long, who writes a wonderful historical romance series. And I was like, oh, my gosh, guess what? There are like eight more. And she wrote and said, oh, that's amazing. My day is made. <laughs> 
it's so great when you not only find a book that you love, but then there's more of them. Yes. So you're a, we'll call you an expert in the genre of romance. Yeah. Okay. What are, what are things that the most successful writers in this genre do that those that are less successful don't do? In order to write romance and to really communicate to readers that you understand the genre, you, it helps to have read romance and to have a deep understanding of it. Romance is a story of courtship with a happy ending. And the conflicts that work against the couple can be internal or external or both. When an author demonstrates that they understand the fundamental agreement of romance, which is that the reader expects a happy ending and a courtship that is believable and a happy ending between those two people that is possibly sustainable into the future after the book. When the author understands that is part of the reader's expectation, they are already ahead of the game. There are many people, especially now with so many people self-publishing, who think, well, if I tell people my book is a romance, then the romance readers will buy it and I'll make lots of money because there's lots of them and they buy lots of books. But if you don't honor the basic understanding and the basic expectation that there be a happy ending, romance readers get mad, very mad. We are expecting that story. That is the expectation of a romance reader, much the same as a mystery reader expects that the crime will be solved or a thriller reader expects that whatever injustice has occurred will be corrected. Genre fiction comes with expectations, not just romance, all, all genre fiction in a lot of ways. So once an, an author has demonstrated that they understand that expectation, the strongest writers do innovative and interesting things with very, very familiar tropes. Romance is a basic storytelling motif that has been employed since humans sat around and spun stories around a fire and shot the bull with each other after doing whatever it was they did all day. There were quest stories, but quests almost always had a romance. There were stories of courtship and tragedy, but the, the attraction of people to one another is something that people have always talked about and told stories about. It's a fundamental piece of storytelling. So there's a huge history involved. A writer who takes the very familiar types of romance, the Beauty and the Beast story, the Cinderella story, the Rags to Riches story, the Friends to Lovers story, the We Really Cannot Be Together for a Whole Bunch of Impossible Reasons story, mm -hmm. a writer who takes those familiar structures and builds something unique within them is a writer who will have probably a very, very happy readership. One thing that I found very interesting is the number of former attorneys who now write romance. There's a bunch of them. Bunches of them. They call themselves recovering lawyers. Mm -hmm. One of the things about legal writing, and I, and I know this because I'm married to an attorney, is that when you write as a lawyer, there's a format that you must follow, whether you are filing a brief or you are constructing a legal document or you are developing a written argument for or against a particular case. There is a structure that must be followed. So once you find that structure, once you know that structure, the creativity of your argument goes in the middle there, but you have to follow the structure. The the outline and the fundamental boundaries of the argument that you're going to make are the same no matter what attorney is writing that argument. The same is true for romance. There is a fundamental structure. And a lot of authors sort of bristle at the idea of calling it a formula because it makes it seem as if all romances are the same and they're not. The structure of a romance is very, very simple and basic. There are two people. They're going to meet. There's going to be a conflict. They're going to work it out, and they're going to live happily ever after, right? Mm -hmm. Actually doing that successfully and making a compelling story out of it is really, really hard. 
So when you have someone who's familiar with the structure and yet has the creativity to do something unique and incredible with something so familiar, that's the author who's going to enjoy a very happy readership. Are you curious to see what Russell Blake is going to do um, with his romance career? No, not really. I am. You are? And and I am just because I I enjoy his thriller books, and I want to see how he can transition that because I don't think he reads romance, and all of the things you've been talking about leads me to believe that he's not going to be good at this, but he is really good at following the path. So if, if he can identify the path, it'll be interesting to me to see what he does with it. I don't know that I'll read more than one of his romance books, but I, I'm curious. I don't blame you for being curious. One of the things that male romance writers struggle with is the number of men who have come before them and said, I'm writing romance. Here it is. And then readers go, that wasn't romance. You lied. <laughs> Dude, not cool. So there are there are a number of men who write romance, and they write very good romance, but their path to reach readers is a little bit more difficult because of the ways in which romance has been mismarketed to romance readers in the past. However, there are some excellent writers of romance who are male. So if he can do it, more power to him. What causes you to cringe when you're reading a book? Oh, (laughs) many things, but my top pet peeves are fake dialogue. People that talk in a book in a way that normal humans would never talk, or people who talk in plot language. Well, as you know, Bob, the, the bad guys are coming because we've got the thing. Oh, no, we've got the thing. Yes, it's in your backpack. People who talk in plot or people who talk unrealistically, who say things that people would never say in a normal situation, that just, that, I'm out. That's, I'm done. So you're done. That's a DNF. That's going to be really hard to convince me to keep going. I have, there's a number of reader. there are a number of readers who very much dislike historical inaccuracy. And I am not one of those readers. I don't care if the Duke drives a Porsche to Almax in 1810. I don't care. <laughs> if, if, if he, you know, hang glides home, don't care. But if he talks like a, a piece of plot or a piece of wood, or he's only there to address the plot and isn't a person, then I'm done. The thing that I like best about romance is meeting different people and experiencing different people's lives. There are a bunch of um, studies that have been discussed on Twitter about how reading fiction promotes empathy in readers and that people who read a lot of fiction are more empathetic generally because they've experienced someone else's life and someone else's problem. I definitely think that's true for me because the thing that I like best is when characters are real and they feel like real people. And it sounds completely nutso, but I've absolutely had conversations multiple times about how when you finish a book, you miss those people. You miss the characters. We call it book hangover. You miss being in that world. That's why Harry Potter was such a phenomenon. I mean, I was thinking about this recently. There is a set, it's not just one generation, it's multiple generations of, of, at this point of humans on the earth in so many different countries who speak so many different languages, and we all know who Harry Potter is. Hmm. We all know who those characters and that world. People have read that book in dozens of different languages, and yet all of us so many different ages and places, we all know that one character and that story and that world. 
And one of the reasons why there's so much Harry Potter fanfic is because people miss being in that world and want to go back and will create their own stories just because they miss that world that was created. The best books for me are those where the world building and the characters are as are equally as vivid and real seeming. That's something that it, it takes an enormous amount of talent to maintain in a book. And so writers who can do that, I am so grateful to discover them. And I am totally with you on that. The whole idea uh, of, of falling into a world, falling in love with the characters, wh- yes! wh- whoever they may be, the story becomes secondary. And, and yep. so many people just focus on the story. And if the story's good, people will love it. But that's not true. If it's they true. love the characters and they want to revisit the world, um, you know, I, I've read every single Nero Wolf book three times at least. Of course. Some more because I want to visit that world. That's the way I want my world to be, just like yes. it was in Nero Wolf's Brownstone. Of course, of course. And moreover, when you find the world that you want to be in, you don't want to leave. Like, right. you know, there is a microwave. You go make dinner. I'm busy right now in this world in my book. There was <laughs> there was a book. There's a, a wonderful contemporary novel that wasn't really a romance. It's called Yesterday's News, and it's by Katja Ingemarsson. She's Swedish. And it's set in Stockholm. It's about a young woman in Sweden. Nothing completely earth-shattering happened in this book, but it was about a young woman who had just broken up with her boyfriend and moved to Stockholm from a small town in northern Sweden. Um, And she was trying to find her way and find a job and just restart her life after a really bad breakup. But the way that this writer communicated what it was like to be that person I literally said to my husband, leave me alone right now. I'm in Sweden. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry. I got to go be in Sweden. Does he understand? Totally. Oh, yes. Okay. My wife doesn't understand when I say crazy (laughs) things like that. She just gives me the look. And I met, we met when we were 17. We met in high school and we got together at a freshman year of college. So we've been together for a very long time. And so there have been times where I will finish a book and go, And he'll go, oh, is that a good book, dear? I'm like, it was amazing. (laughs) And he totally gets it. He is not as much of a reader as I am, but like you with the Nero Wolf series, he has read the Game of Thrones series at least four times start Mm -hmm. to end because he says every time he reads it, he notices something different. Every time he reads it, he, he follows a different thread through the story. And there are so many of them. Every time he goes back, there's something new. So he understands what I mean when I talk about how I'm with characters or I'm in Sweden right now because he's had that experience too as a reader. You've you've written two books. You mentioned two books. They have very clever titles. Oh, thank you. They're long titles too. Everything. Well, you're good with long titles. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I think I am. Everything I know about love I learned from romance novels and Beyond Heaving Bosoms, The Smart Bitch's Guide to Romance Novels. Yes. And one of those books is in Kindle Unlimited. Yep. What do you think of it? What do you think of Kindle Unlimited as both a writer and as a reader? As a reader, I did not like it. I tried the 30-day trial, and I actually set a calendar reminder to um, tell myself, because present Sarah knows that future Sarah is a little forgetful, and Mm -hmm. past Sarah tries to do present Sarah favors whenever possible. So I set a calendar reminder that said, if you want to cancel Kindle Unlimited, now's your day. It was $9 a month, or $10 a month, whatever it was. 
I spend that much on books normally. With Kindle Unlimited as a reader, my biggest problem was that it was impossible to find what I wanted. The search was not strong enough for me, and I did not want to wade through pages and pages and pages of books in the romance genre that weren't what I was looking for. There were only two publishers that I really wanted to read. One is Sourcebooks and the other was Kensington. And I can find and buy those books on my own or possibly even get a review copy. So as a reader who has access to advanced review copies, Kindle Unlimited was, a, was not good for me. Mm-hmm. As an ordinary reader, if I didn't have access to, um, if I didn't have access to review copies, I still would not have liked Kindle Unlimited. Because I want to read a specific book that I'm looking for, or I want to find a specific trope or a set of characters or a style. I want to read a book that's set in the Victorian era and has a heroine who's got a unique job. I know how to find that elsewhere. I don't know how to find that on Kindle Unlimited. The search function was was not strong enough. As an author, I my second book was published with source books. Sourcebooks in Kensington were put in the Kindle Unlimited program. Mm-hmm. They, they, they were just, they, well, there you go. You're put in this program. So I didn't, nobody asked me. It's just, that's where it was. Um, I get a royalty when the book is borrowed or, or read through Kindle Unlimited. Amazon does pay for that usage of the book. So if someone wants to read my book through Kindle Unlimited, that's great. Awesome. Thank you. But as an author, and this is a bit of an unpopular position given how other authors feel about piracy, I do not care if my book was purchased or borrowed from the library or borrowed from a friend or if it fell off the back of a truck. I don't care. If you read it, I am extremely honored. Thank you for spending those hours with what I wrote. I don't care how it was acquired. I I care that you read it and you liked it or that you read it and you didn't like it. The fact that you read my book is plenty. Okay, so we've been talking with Sarah Wendell today. If you think she's funny and you enjoy her voice and you enjoy having her in your ear, subscribe to the podcast. Oh, thank you. And absolutely check out the website, sign up for the email list, which I did this morning, and enjoy it because it's fun. She's fun to listen to. The website is fabulous. If you like romance, you have to go to smartbitchestrashybooks.com. Thank you for saying that. That's super awesome of you. Thank you for being on the show. Oh, it was a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, including past episodes, you can visit the website at www.theauthorbiz.com. You can also subscribe to the podcast at iTunes. If you have comments or suggestions for the show, you can leave them at the site or you can ping me on Twitter. I'm at Steve Campbell FL. Please join us again next week for another informative episode. 